You're listening to the Journal of Arthroplasties, The Cut, part of Ocus Amplified from the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons, advancing hip and knee patient care through education, advocacy, research, and outreach. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Journal of Arthroplasty podcast, The Cut. We're really excited today to talk to you about AI and machine learning and really what orthopedics of the future is probably going to look like. My name is Peter Golds. I'm a private practice surgeon at Panorama Orthopedics in Denver, Colorado. And I'm Carl Herndon, one of the other hosts of this podcast. I am an assistant professor of orthopedic surgery at Columbia University in New York. And today we're super excited to have three awesome experts and guests on AI and machine learning. First, we have Prem Rankumar, did his residency in the Midwest, did his arthroplasty fellowship at Brigham, and also then completed the sports fellowship at HSS. And he's currently a practicing hip and knee replacement surgeon in Long Beach, California at the Long Beach Orthopedic Institute. Second, we have Nico Piuzzi. He's an adult reconstruction surgeon at the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio, and he's the, the director of the Musculoskeletal Research Center and Adult uh, Reconstruction Research Center at the Cleveland Clinic. And lastly, we have Cody Wiles, uh, another hip and knee surgeon at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. He's the co-director of the Mayo Clinic Orthopedic Surgery AI Laboratory. And for 365 days between 2021 and 2022, he had the great privilege to bear witness to the greatness of my co-host, Carl Herndon, as a co-fellow at uh, Ortho Carolina. Thank you guys for joining. Thanks for inviting I us. I am flattered. So let's start off for our first paper. It's a paper called An Overview of Machine Learning in Orthopedic Surgery, an Educational Paper. Basically, this paper just reviews some of the definitions of what machine learning is, what AI is. So I'll go over a couple of these, and then we'll just open up to an open conversation. So machine learning is defined as an artificial intelligence tool suited for processing large amounts of available data. And there's three big applications within medicine and orthopedics specifically. First would be tabular spreadsheet and data analysis. Second would be medical imaging processing. And third, natural language processing. For instance, identifying fractures on radiographs, different implant types, stages of osteoarthritis are all things that machine learning could do. And it could also perform tedious tasks with minimal errors in a cost-effective way. And basically, in a nutshell, machine learning is AI's ability to identify patterns in existing data to predict a desired outcome when given a new example. So, you know, Cody, you wrote up this paper and you want to kind of start it off with you. Can you just give us your kind of brief overview of, you know, how you got into machine learning, how you got into AI and where you think we are with it today? Yeah, thanks, Peter. And thanks for the opportunity. My interest in AI and coming to this was a little bit serendipitous. I started to read a little bit about it circa 2018, 2019, take some online courses and then decided to make that sort of how I spent my time uh, once COVID hit and we all suddenly had uh, all this extra time on our hands to take a deeper dive into that and consult with much smarter minds like Prem Ram Kumar to get me on the straight and narrow to learn a little bit more about this. We'll never be a full-blown expert coder and dual threat like Prem, but uh, he's been an inspiration for me. <laughs> it is true though, you know, and to bring it back to this paper specifically, Peter, you know, this is kind of one of four that we put out in this issue that we thought would be sort of a nice service for the JOA readership when they announce this special issue on AI to have four articles that go over sort of nuts and bolts of AI and its different subdivisions. 
as educational papers. So to introduce this unfamiliar terminology to let readers know what's a worthwhile application, what's not. So we hope that the readers of this issue find that helpful because this is brand new stuff. It's kind of a brave new world and it's going to take a while for it to seep into the conscience of the JOA readership and our colleagues. But the more it comes to the forefront, we're going to be seeing a lot of this. Can you kind of just explain, you know, AI and machine learning and, and your words or and how you want other people to start to think about it that might not know anything about it at this point? Yeah, you know, AI is a very broad term. It is at its core, you know, a very advanced form of mathematics and prediction. And there's various subdivisions that we talk about in the areas of natural language processing. A more advanced form of natural language processing has recently come about with the use of large language models, such as GPT-4. In a totally different category, we think about machine learning as a subset of artificial intelligence, deep learning being a subset of that. And some of the applications that you'll see in this issue of the journal with machine learning, that's where we take a lot of data, feed it to a model, allow us to make predictions. Deep learning is based more on the concept of a neural network that's patterned more or less sort of off of the neural connections in our brain. And we use that, at least uh, some of the applications we've done in our lab have been more in the realm of imaging and image processing, computer vision gaining new insights into radiographs and using them for predictive purposes as well. In this paper, Cody, you, you talk about how that line, and I am not an expert in, in AI, so perhaps I'm a good host because maybe I'll ask some of the questions that some of our listeners and some of our readership want asked. But um, so that the line between machine learning and um, computer vision or neural networks or uh, deep learning, the line sort of is drawn at the point at which human intervention or human double checking isn't needed anymore, that the computer starts to sort of take it and run and create its own patterns. Is that a fair way of putting it? Carl, it's a good question. The distinction is a little different. It's more in the structure of the model. Honestly, as far as those on the call, Prem would be the best person to really give the the precise definition here, but it honestly is is how the model is structured. I mean, I, I think of like depending on who we're talking to, and these are usually people just surgeons trying to figure out what they need to understand about it. I feel like giving specific names to the model, like convolutional neural network, that's where things can be confusing. The big thing I look at when I talk about AI is generative or non-generative. Non-generative is looking at the mirror of your own data. So you can basically take all the papers that have ever been published in orthopedics. And you know, at the end, when they post their regression model, it tells you the risk factors for an outcome, such as smoking is really bad for outcomes or diabetes is really bad. Instead of telling you how those risk factors are after the analysis or after the surgery, just imagine a risk calculator putting that beforehand that tells you exactly how bad it is before you actually undergo surgery. So you can really engage in shared decision-making. And that is the non-generative aspect of AI. And in the subset, if you want to get technical, that's machine learning. The area that gives that makes me lose sleep at night is generative AI, where people are truly just creating new data and creating new things and just putting it out there. So when you are on social media or you're on whatever platform you look at and you're looking at things that are fake, that are created by a computer, that is generative AI. And personally, I think there is very little room 
for generative AI in orthopedic research because that means you're truly just letting a computer fabricate information, fabricate data. And in some cases, it could be useful, but but honestly, it's really crossing over a line that I think will be very dangerous for many people to understand. And then a third component is this natural language processing, which, you know, ChatGPT, you put in a question and it spits out an answer. So by definition, if it's spitting out an answer, it's a generative process, correct? And so it's using the data from the internet, which as you know, is a moving target to spit out the answer. So imagine just getting the answer you want from what you're Googling. And that's a super reductionist way of describing it, but I hope that makes some sense. No, I think that's really helpful, Prem. I think defining it at least in my my layman's understanding of the issue of generative versus non-generative, I think is really helpful. You said it, it makes you lose sleep at night. I think there's probably a bunch of people that are going to listen to this that share that same uh, misgiving about embracing this kind of technology. Talk to us about how a a community orthopedic surgeon or someone who is not at the forefront of this like you guys are, um, you know, what is it that they can expect to see as these things come online and as these things start to mature in whatever, I don't know what that time frame looks like or anything else like that, but what are some of the things where this is going to be helpful and not hurtful? And where does that line exist where it's going to sort of cross over into a territory that we all should be collectively, you know, trepidatious about? All right. Imagine you have a data set that, let's say you're a research assistant, you take a job at a famous academic institution, you're a medical student, you're trying to pump out as many papers as possible, and it's five to 10 years down the road. And then you look at the actual data set of your attending surgeon's super rare surgery, and you realize, oh my God, the loss to follow-up is about 40%. And that's really bad, obviously, right? You can use a generative AI model to impute the data, aka make up the data of what the rest of that 60% looks like. You can add it as a two to three line sentence in your methodology. And I promise you, you'd probably still get that published because the readership doesn't understand what you did. So you're really generating fake data based on the existing 40%. And if someone were to ask you to recall an exact case, that model could make up a case that's based on features of reality. And that's an example of using generative AI in research. Obviously, if, when I put it like that, that's pretty scary. How about something that could happen today? Let's say you have an overambunctious surgeon who's trying to dominate SEO search to become the premier, I don't know, DA hip surgeon in Rochester, Minnesota. Okay. And anyone within a hundred mile radius wants, you want all those patients to come to just you. You could use generative AI to make up patient reviews and comments and five-star ratings of all your stuff that's that's online about you. That, to me, is something that already exists in other industries that is very concerning today. And you trick enough people into believing that these are real patient reviews and real things. That's an example of two ways from like either a very relatable research assistant standpoint where you're not really making up data, but you're using a generative AI model to tell you what you think reality looks like, or you're an attending surgeon and you're creating fake patient reviews to get enough attention because you believe you're deserving of all those reviews. That's an example uh, that I hope makes sense there.
the thing that I would just follow on that, and I think it's kind of at the heart of my approach to AI is, I mean, overall medical data is doubling now every two months by some estimates and probably even faster, right? So we're generating a tremendous amount of data in multiple forms, right? And that's just going to increase as time goes by, right? What used to happen every 50 years now happens every couple of months and that will continue to increase. So at the end, what used to be who has the data has the power, now we kind of shift it into whoever can do the analysis has the power, right? And we have to be able to analyze large amounts of data and make anything meaningful. But going to the point, I think that we do still have to rely on good data, right? Because even if you have a lot of data and you don't have good data, I mean, it's garbage in, garbage out, right? In that regard, I have a question just to follow up to Cody and, and to Prim, right? I mean, how do you foresee like um, supervised machine learning versus unsupervised machine learning in what relates to models? I mean, is there something to be said on, on, on creating ML through models or sets of data have been previously analyzed, labeled by well-defined and processed to those models that were generated or get created um, by data that is just unsupervised. So what's your take there? I'll let Prem jump in here as well. But uh, I mean, my, my quick answer to that is the question of whether to undertake a supervised versus unsupervised model is actually more driven by the question you're trying to answer in the nature of the data set that you have. So there are some questions that must be supervised learning to accomplish them. So for example, if I want to create a calculator that measures a specific angle, I need to go in and create a gold standard data set with the known answer to that on a subset that the machine learning model can be trained on in a supervised fashion to consistently learn and produce the correct answer. In other situations, I might be trying to do something more in the realm of discovery, such as looking at a preoperative x-ray to gain insights into risk of a postoperative complication, X, Y, or Z. In that, you also are going to have to train the model with a supervised learning approach to teach it who sustained complications, who didn't. But there's other applications where that's not going to be appropriate and you're going to let the model make its own associations. But if you're getting at the question of where it becomes dangerous, I think that's more Prem's point in the generative, non-generative realm where we get into those more ethical quandaries. Prem, what would you say about that? So if you're if you so if you going to do a, a supervised versus a non-supervised model, so let's say, let's say there's something that needs to be supervised, right? You're, you're talking about doing a specific kind of procedure on a specific patient or choosing to not do a procedure, so on and so forth. Who, who would supervise that and what kind of like work would it take for someone to actually supervise that kind of model? I mean, is it, is it realistic for someone to continue to check it and supervise that model? I mean, what kind of work actually goes into doing a supervised versus non-supervised model? To answer that question, Peter, like Cody said, it kind of depends on the use case. But let's take an example of a supervised model. So when you're using a robotic platform and it goes and puts the implants templated on your knee or your hip, the surgeon, before they actually make the decision, will run through and look at where the sales associate has that implant on the model. You're technically supervising it before you go ahead and say yes, but there's additional checks intraoperatively where there's more supervision allowed. And so that's an example of, yeah, realistically, a lot of that's unsupervised, but the final buck stops with the surgeon before you scrub in. And then, of course, obviously, once you do your intraoperative balancing and so forth. But 
to answer the original question, supervised versus unsupervised, I think the answer comes su- is super simple because it really just depends on who, which industry we're talking about. It's just a social question. So I started a company last year called Intelligent Health Analytics, where we basically automate claims for musculoskeletal interventions, basically helping insurers decide whether or not to accept, reject, or prior out the claim. And the problem that I ran into getting this company going as we talked to more businesses was essentially that a lot of the businesses would say, why do you even supervise any of these predictions? Well, because you can run into a real problem when you're denying or accepting a certain patient's musculoskeletal claim for doctors. They wouldn't like having a patient's life be determined without a single human being involved. And that's a social problem. Whereas if you're talking to businessmen, they're basically thinking of that as, well, you're introducing risk. You're introducing lack of bias. They want more automation, more efficiency, more unsupervision. Whereas in medicine, on our side, we're basically saying that's crazy. It's truly crazy to not have a human being with medical expertise check. So it really comes down to what degree of comfort we are and what room we're talking to, whether it's businessmen or people in medicine. Obviously, we're all in medicine. So the idea of an unsupervised model seems a little too cowboyish, but that's where we're headed and we don't even realize it. Do you feel like 5, 10, 20 years down the road, again, maybe setting, putting a specific time frame on it doesn't matter, but you feel like eventually where things are moving is that maybe a scenario where I'm going to be a surgeon and basically I won't even need to see a patient in the clinic, let's say, that there will be an already spelled out algorithm that a patient puts all their information into and it's predetermined if that patient is a surgical candidate ready for surgery, an appropriate risk for surgery, and I don't even need to do a clinical evaluation they can just show up day of surgery, having been all prepped. I meet them and say, okay, let's do no, the surgery. No, 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 no. I mean, like that's a separate, I mean, I was with you up until a certain point, but I think that AI is meant to automate the really tedious tasks, but you can't take out like the human element of it. I mean, that's a personal thing. I don't think that's good medicine, but I think they need to actually see a human, but let's get to what you were talking about beforehand. So Peter, let's assume you have two rooms, you're booking, you're doing eight cases a day, four and four, okay? Maybe one or two of them are revisions. And today, your workflow is, you know, your scheduler says, hey, what order do you want the rooms and what issue? And then you may be waiting on a, I don't know, a urine pregnancy test or a cottoning test to make sure the patient really stops smoking, whatever it is. I truly believe that you wasting time on your Sunday evening figuring out your Tuesday schedule for what the most efficient workflow is with various parameters such as pre-op lab tests, that's going to be automated for sure. That You won't need to be thinking about that. Initially, you're going to be worried about, oh, God, is Alan correct? But I think in the long run, you're going to be depending on your scheduling. So, for example, like the NFL used to spend – six to seven weeks creating up their own schedule. And I think they're now bragging about how they use AI to get the perfect schedule for media ratings, for all the perfect attendance and the right days, Monday Night Football, Thursday Night Football, done within 20 minutes for all the permutations of teams. That's a clear-cut example of how I think it'll benefit. But I don't think you can replace or should replace human interaction with, with AI. 
Yeah, I mean, at, at the forefront, I mean, of what we do is, is a trust, trust relationship, right? The patient needs to be able to establish that trust and, and, and delegate and, and give you the opportunity. He's putting your life, right? He's going to sleep and, and, and you're doing surgery on them, right? So they need to be able to be able to bond at that level that AI will never be able to probably to, to replace that, that human connection, right? But I do think that, I mean, if we frame it, I mean, just as what Prim was highlighting, I mean, if we frame it, I mean, in, in healthcare delivery, I mean, in both in the diagnostics, both in automated imaging analysis, that's paper that we're going to be discussing, timely diagnosis, being able to restratify and provide personalized prediction for outcomes of patients undergoing surgery, optimizing the planning, and then anticipation of resource utilization and, and the entire healthcare um, cost prediction. I think that's the, the potential is tremendous, right? Just, but I think I see it more as an augmentation of the human delivery of care rather than a replacement. And I think the more we, we do it with that approach, the least resistance the field will have to it because we're not trying to replace, we're trying to augment and have more tools to be able to just be more efficient and deliver better care. Because now we're still relying on, on experience and we fly blinded in many aspects of surgery where we could have data that can just help us perform what our craft better, right? I think it's really great, you know, to hear from all three of you, the importance of human medicine is not being diminished by these tools or being sidelined by these tools, but these tools are being designed, hopefully, to augment and perhaps even give us that interaction back instead of being burnt out by pre-op lab testing and double-checking smoking screens and those kinds of things, being able to offload that or allow a system that whatever, doesn't tire and doesn't complain or say it's not my job or call out sick or anything else like that to be able to take that over. I think one of the other interesting things that you guys have explored, and Pram, I'm going to flip it back to you here, and the other two papers that we included for tonight's talk are on your algorithms looking at identification of both hip and knee implants, two different papers, and identifying brand and design and title of, of implants and stuff like that, particularly for a revision surgeon who is revising something maybe from a different part of the country, a different part of the world, maybe something that's been in for 10 or more years and old op notes aren't available. We've all been in this situation. A patient comes into your clinic or comes into your ER even worse with you know an acute thing where you just you know, you're sort of puzzled and, and not 100% sure what it is. You, you text it out to your buddies. You try to find Andy Schwartz any way that you can or anything else like that. But so, Prem, just talk to us a little bit about how you designed those papers. What were some of the things that you think that this tool with uh, machine learning can help to bring application to this topic and also sort of where you think the process is going? Do you think this is going to be something that's a, a viable, uh, you know, uh, ex not just externally validated, but also just available for external use at any point in the future? Yeah, I mean... It's basically repeating the same study we did in 2019 because the feedback we got from reviewers was, congrats, you did it at one institution, can you do it at others? Which is kind of a stupid question, in my opinion, because all photos of x-rays look the same. So it's, I don't know, I just, I just did it because it apparently needs to be proven. So, I mean, Cody knows that's like a dumb hypothesis, but we have to do it. So we did it. I use it. I use it for myself. We were trying to work with AUKUS to get the organization to use it, but I think there's some hiccups in the way with budgetary stuff, but it's available for those who are interested. So 
but uh, you know, we also have to massage it with more older, older X-rays. And this is actually comes full circle. So, for example, if you have like only one or two X-rays of a certain implant that's very old, Cody put out a good paper that I gave him some grief about last week about using generative AI. And I was like, are you, I, I think I literally texted you, Cody, are you crazy? You're doing generative AI on research and nobody has any idea what, what you just did. But in Cody's defense, it's a great idea for that exact use case where I don't think you need more than 50 or 100 different x-rays, but if you just repeat it and manipulate the photo in different angles and different images so that someone on the fly could have that, that would be a great example of using generative AI, but it really comes down to who's the sheriff looking at what you're actually doing, and we all know like this is not that many people's forte, so <laughs> it can get really ugly really quickly. But that being said, I still think it's a great use well, of generative AI. <laughs> yeah, we'll... Uh... We'll keep the spiciness of our personal text out of, out of our uh, podcast here. I don't know if not, 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 not for all audiences. It's mostly yeah, me complaining well, about the Lakers. That is true. It is actually mostly you complaining about the Lakers. Um, yeah. yeah, I uh, no, you bring up a good point. It's something I wanted to touch on earlier. You know, there's definitely two edges to the sword when it comes to generative AI, and Prem's done a nice job sort of outlining appropriately so the cautionary tale and where things can go wrong. That being said, uh, I think there is a lane to sort of explore this in a responsible fashion, obviously, being careful what type of topics we're looking at with this and entering it with some humility, but knowing that there's some potential there. So some of the areas that we're working on with generative AI and where there's potentially uh, some promise are in our resource constrained environment. You know, when Google trains an algorithm on a natural image, like, hey, recognize this cat. Okay, well, the internet has 50 trillion cat pictures and videos. So that's an easy thing for it to train on. In medical imaging, we're much more resource constrained. So that offers a danger, but also an opportunity. The danger is that on very small constrained data sets with data imbalances, for example, when you look at the demographic breakdown on a small set of x-rays that's imbalanced, you're going to be training models that are at very high risk of bias. So one of the things that we're interested in looking at is using generative AI to actually detect these differences that exist in x-rays based on perhaps different demographic profiles. And you can imagine a pathway that allows us to detect biases in models in the future and perhaps even create more balanced data sets through the generative process. So I think there is some potential there. Again, we have to be very careful and rigorous about the metrics we're applying to evaluate it, um, but have to give a little balance to what Prem is saying to say there's a potential upside moving forward. <laughs> what else do you guys see as potential areas for for augmentation? You know, augmentation to kind of our current processes, right? Like Prem talked a little bit about, you know, augmenting more efficiency in terms of scheduling and pre-op work. We talked a little bit about radiograph identification, implant identification. What's kind of the holy grail for you guys or some other areas where you think as surgeons, everyone's going to be 
really pumped that, hey, we now have developed this AI algorithm that can really help make our day-to-day better, make burnout less. Like what other things can can it potentially do in the future is just going to make us happier to, to go to work every day. For me personally, I think it's non-healthcare related tasks. It's ironic that the paper we're talking about from my team is a clinical task, like identifying implants. But my entire reason for going down this AI rabbit hole is centered on what I talked about with the company mission that we're doing, which is basically for an arthroplasty surgeon, we shouldn't be denying necessary arthroplasty to patients that need it. Okay, we sh- that should not happen. They don't see the x-rays. We all see Chad Kruger's tweets about specific rejections from certain insurance companies about how ridiculous it is, especially in revision settings. We should be a little more braggadocious about how well these surgeries do, especially compared to other certain orthopedic subspecialties. And the thing that a lot of insurance companies can't wrap their heads around is that if these patients need a joint replacement, there is a good chance they will be back to work and there's a good chance they will be back to receiving a check and there'll be a, there's an even better chance that they'll be a continuing paying beneficiary. So if you put in the six to ten weeks of approving these necessary procedures from the experts at AUKUS, then these people can get back to their lives. And then guess what? Insurance companies are happy, patients are happy, surgeons are happy. We need to help out these clueless insurance companies to realize what musculoskeletal interventions should be rapidly accepted, which ones should be denied, and which ones should be uh, at least have an expert medical opinion. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Uh, and, and for me, I mean, if I have to think of where I would see the future, I, I think personalized medicine would be the frame of it. And I would love to see a true digital twin for every patient that will undergo surgery, right? So imagine that if you have a patient that comes sees you, you can actually create and have a digital repli- replication of what that person would undergo if they were to have a joint replacement, right? So you can actually mimic and go through multiple scenarios and kind of determine an individual plan for that patient that will be safe. And you can actually look at the different scenarios and be able to have an, a, a good, accurate prediction uh, of what the care pathway would look like for that patient. And you can troubleshoot along the way. So I think that in the future, having that, I mean, along all the healthcare research utilization and process that Prim was saying, I think it would be a step forward for our field. Yeah, you know, a couple areas that I'm excited about, very similar to what the other two just said, is areas where we want AI, and again, what the time frame for this is, I don't have the crystal ball on it, of course, but we want it to replace the tasks that are administrative in nature that take us away from the patient, that take us away from doing the job that we all entered this field to do. And so like the mission of Prem's company and so many others out there with a similar ethos, it's take the things that are the pain points in medicine from an administrative burden, from an inefficiency standpoint, things that really don't have anything to do with clinical care. And to the degree that can be automated or improved from an efficiency standpoint, we should be all in on that. Within the realm of medicine, it's a little bit more cautious, right? We don't want tools that are going to come in and replace what we do, there needs to be a surgeon or a physician in the loop at the minimum. And these are tools when it comes to clinical decision aids or what have you, that it's a co-pilot mentality. It's something that it just gives us another data point. And I wouldn't look at it as anything more than that. So whether it's predicting the risk of a post-operative dislocation or automatically annotating features of radiographs, that's giving us more tools in our tool set, but ultimately 
it's still up to us as surgeons to make decisions, to treat the patient how we think is best. And then the last thing I would say, these tools are going to become increasingly commonplace and I think really coalesce with some of the other enabling technologies that are becoming more prevalent, especially in our field of arthroplasty. So robotics, navigation, things like that. AI is really going to allow us, I think, to extract the maximum value out of that when we enter them into the preoperative phase, intraoperative phase for execution and postoperative phase with surveillance sort of feeding back and allowing these models to iteratively improve in a virtuous circle. We have two questions really always in arthroplasty or orthopedics in general, and it's what is the target and can we hit the target? And so we're getting really, really good at number two, which is hitting the target with some of these enabling technologies. And I think AI is going to be our biggest answer to the first question of what is the target for this patient in front of you right here. And so when we marry these things together and we look forward to 2025, 2030, I think we're going to have a very powerful suite of technologies to allow us to, to do the best job for people. I think that's really exciting, guys. I guess a, a quick follow-up question to all of you. You know, I think one of the things, Cody, you mentioned it was sort of square on the head, a question of what does this patient need in front of me? How tight do I leave this compartment in their knee during a total knee or how much length or offset should I choose to restore or not restore or whatever in a total hip or something like that. But I think another thing that correlates to all of that is patient outcomes. And I think one of the things that we're going to be seeing a lot of in our country as CMS moves to these kinds of ways of thinking about stuff and probably the private payers will follow along is how that affects reimbursement, how that affects, you know, as we collect patient reported outcomes measures, I think being paid for value and for outcomes and for this sort of value-based care model that a lot of people are talking about. How do you guys feel like this tool or this whatever machine learning in general, or AI in, in general, machine learning in, in particular is going to be used in that sort of new space. To kind of piggyback on that, Carl, you know, to Prem's point earlier, I think as the younger generation, you know, how can we use this data and how can we use our outcomes not further devalue what we're doing? Like, is there a way to use these tools to show the value and then regain the value that we actually deserve? Do you guys see that as a potential? The trains left the station. The, think about it. What we just said, all it does is making our lives easier. So if our lives are easier, we're either going home earlier or we're doing more cases. Either way, it's making the workflow easier. And at the end of the day, if the audience doesn't care about what we're saying, they're, they're just going to continue devaluing it, especially if we continue to show how good we are at it. The better you are, the less people appreciate you. Look at LeBron James. That's been a very robust theme in yes, personal uh, yes. thread, but uh, amongst many others, you know, I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna continue my my role that I didn't know I had coming into this podcast, but it's to be the positive voice to counterbalance Prem here a little bit. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I think there is a lot of promise here. You know, so is there a risk of this devaluing process that has been pervasive in arthroplasty in many areas of medicine over the last two or three decades? Of course. Does that mean we shouldn't pursue the noble goal of trying to get better at our craft and using the best tools at our disposal to do the best for the patient in front of us? No, we absolutely should go for that while being mindful that that danger exists and fighting against that as appropriate. 
But, you know, I think it's going to be incumbent upon us to prove that we're actually adding value, whether that's clinical outcomes or efficiency or both. And I think Prem and Nico would agree here, to those that are developing these tools, there's the challenge of developing them. And that's sort of one level. Implementing them is an order of magnitude yeah. higher bar. And so, you know, making these tools, not to trivialize some of them, but I mean, it's like a, it's like doing a cartwheel, but then implementing it in a way that's been validated, robust, safe, and efficacious, that's the Simone Biles floor routine. You know, you have very few people that are Cody, doing that. Cody, you didn't answer the question. Is this going to result in further devaluation, yes or no? Well, if that's the question, I think there's a, a high likelihood of that if we're not careful. <laughs> yes. I was answering the other question, Prem, on whether or not, to Carl's question, this is going to help us take better care of patients. And the answer to that is yes well, as yeah. well. Well, look, I mean, I think, Prem, you, you kind of brought up a point in the beginning about describing how we do bring value to the system, right? And so there could be a way where machine learning can help us get better data that can actually show the numbers of how we're bringing more value and why and, you know, potentially using that as 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 leverage. Data is the most important aspect of this. This whole machine learning AI conversation, it's just it's like purchasing a mirror. It's showing you what you have in a potable way. And so what yeah. you're showing, what your substance is, it's the data. And if, if you don't have a good infrastructure to collect the data, yeah. then, then you're screwed. Then there's really nothing else. And we've presented our best data. And to answer the devaluation question, it sounds like Cody's saying yes, further devaluation. I'm saying yes. What do you guys think? I'm I mean, I, I, I mean, I'm in the middle. I mean, because if I have to be honest, I, I, for me the question is, I mean, and, and, and the value question, it depends on, on what we put as uh, in in the equation of value, right? Because basically, you have whatever outcome you put over over cost, right? And and it all depends how much you're willing to pay and and and, and what thresholds you set for the outcomes that you you tend to improve. So, I would think that it's a high risk of having uh, of that happening. But I also would say that. I mean, even with all these PRO changes that are coming, I mean, we have to be cautious, right? Because collecting the PROs is not an easy or trivial task, right? I mean, it's not something that we can just relegate to a virtual or automated system. That's just going to get you half of the way. So we're going to have to do like, as a field, we're going to have to do a lot of investment on it. And then if we're going to be held accountable to do it, to get reimbursement, our costs are going to go up. So... I strive to see how, how this will increase value if, if it's going to be affecting both ends of the equation. I think it's a really good point, Nico. And yeah, if you, you, you can't sort of, you can't pay Peter without Robin from Paul in a, in a sense to collect all these PROs. We're going through this in our own institution right now. And um, anyway, trying to protocolize it better, you know, across our enterprise. And it's just the only way to do it well is to hire a whole lot of people to make phone calls a lot and put people in the offices and whatever, put yeah. iPads in the faces of patients that are coming in for their post-op appointments. And like even now, just getting, you know, my hip patients to get hip forms and my knee patients to get knee forms is, is, a, is, a, is a task. And to Prim's point, with reimbursement going down and yeah. us being penalized for multiple aspects of the care of patients and held responsible for multiple of the outcomes that happen afterwards within the, the bundle period, this just will add another hurdle and another cost that 
it, it will be interesting to see how to see how it plays out. Yeah. I think for revision, like if you book a case from what an administrator is seeing, if you see it's like a two-component revision, I hope that leads administrators and payers to realize this is a lot more difficult. And maybe if this surgeon has a track record of taking on revisions, perhaps we should value their role in the community more. I think that's a more wishful thinking, but um, that would be helpful to non-surgeons to communicate. And, and so it's really just a communication tool of what all of us here really know. Uh, Cody, Prem, Nico, thank you guys so much for, for joining us tonight, for sharing everything on this topic. I think this would be super helpful for people to, you know, really start to understand what AI machine learning is and kind of where it's going. And, we're, you know, we're really grateful for the work that you guys are all putting in to help uh, take us to the future, no matter how grim or devalued that future might be. So, you know, hopefully it's a, a greater future for all of us and, better, and more importantly, a uh, better future for all of our patients. So thank you guys so much. Thanks, Peter. Thanks, Carl, for the opportunity. Thank you all. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining us for the Journal of Arthroplasty's The Cut. Visit AUKUS.org to learn more about how members of American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons educate, advocate, investigate, and perform humanitarian outreach in the field of hip and knee replacement surgery.